This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Sometimes in this program, things get a little dense. No, it's got nothing to do with you, Mr. McMillan. But sometimes when we do long, windy articles that we think we need to quote from at length, it gets a little complicated. Also, some science stories can sometimes be difficult to uh, to summarize succinctly. We haven't done science in a while. Let's do a few sciencey items, starting with the fact that a new study of fossilized footprints in New Mexico indicates that humans were living in North America 23,000 years ago, which is millennia earlier than most scientists once believed. As you may or may not be aware, researchers have long debated when humans first got to the Americas after spreading out from Africa and, well, Asia, across the Bering Straits. Many believe the first Americans' ancestors migrated as recently as 13,000 years ago by crossing a now-submerged land bridge connecting Siberia to Alaska during the last ice age. Others say they arrived about 16,000 years ago, or even up to 30,000 years ago, although there's little evidence in the fossil record to support such claims. But new footprints preserved in an ancient lakeshore in what is now the arid White Sands National Park show that humans were living in the American Southwest at a time when colossal ice sheets would have blocked the path of migrants from Asia. NBCnews.com quoted author Matthew Bennett from Bournemouth University in the UK as saying, a footprint is a really good unequivocal data point. That's the importance of the site. We know they were there. Now, apparently uh, dating fossilized footprints is exceptionally difficult, but these 61 tracks were interlaid with sediments containing the seeds of plants that once grew along the lake which means you can radiocarbon date the seeds to discover that the footprints were between 21 and 23,000 years old. So yeah, sounds like pretty solid data. We need to find an anthropologist that'll talk to us about this. And speaking of fossils, New Scientist magazine has a pretty interesting piece that we should cite about China's dinosaurs. They found some fossils in China which pretty clearly spell out the fact that feathers are not unique to birds. The article notes that since 1997, thousands of specimens of dinosaurs and early birds have emerged from China's Jurassic and Cretaceous fossil beds, most of which are exceptionally well-preserved, including their soft tissues and feathers. What makes these fossils so extraordinary is the chemically unusual environment in which they were formed. From 160 to 110 million years ago, there was continuing volcanic activity in North China, a large region north of Beijing. Some animals were buried alive under ash falls, kind of like a prehistoric Pompeii. Many came to rest in ancient lake beds where fine-grained sediments mixed with enough washed-in volcanic ash to make them acidic and minimizing decay and scavenging. It also provided the right conditions to pickle the tougher soft tissues, including feathers, and even preserve internal organs, sometimes stomach contents and biomolecules even, like proteins, lipids, and sugars. We talked many years ago about uh, some actual tissue that managed to survive 65 million years. I believe it was a bit of Tyrannosaurus. There were some collagen molecules that that survived. They were able to... um, 
reverse engineer the genetics of some of those molecules and concluded that the Tyrannosaurus was related to the chicken. It's pretty cool stuff. The article notes that back in 96, there was a long gap in the fossil record between Archaeopteryx, which had reptilian features, including jaws with teeth in them, and a long bony tail, and more modern birds dating from about 80 million years ago. That gap has now been filled with dozens of species of bird-like dinosaurs and early birds. The more we go along, the fewer missing links there are in the fossil record. A couple decades ago, how we got whales was a complete mystery, and now we know that they evolved from hippopotamus-type organisms. Anyway, a pretty interesting piece reveals that after studying all these fossils, they've now concluded that flight evolved not once, but at least three times. Not all of these innovations made it to the present day. There's one fossil that still amazes me. I'm sure you've seen pictures of this. I, I hope you've seen pictures of this. It shows a bird which lived about 125 million years ago. It had four wings. It had wings on its feet, basically. And there's another contemporary that has a bat-like membrane wing. Now, that same issue of New Scientist has a following piece about the warping of space-time. It noted that Albert Einstein once proposed that space-time was more twisted than even he had supposed. And they note this long-forgotten idea might just solve today's crisis in cosmology. Now, here at Radio Parallax, we don't give a damn about any crisis in cosmology. So here's what we're going to do with this article. I know, a lot of people are intrigued by how the universe got its start, and they run all these math equations and computer simulations, and they wonder about this and that, and eh, we don't care. Maybe when they get the James Webb telescope up there and they can appear back in space to the very beginning of things, uh, we'll know more. And in the meantime, we don't care. We're focused closer to home and things like, well, invasive plants. Again, referring to our favorite science magazine, which these days runs a regular section on gardening. A piece in the August 14th issue suggested that, that it's time we face up to plant thugs. To quote from the piece, In the past, horticulturalists brought thousands of new plant species from distant lands to the UK. It is a British publication. And some have become staples in gardens. A few have spread beyond the fence to grow in the wild and are so vigorous they've taken over local ecosystems. Well-known examples include Japanese knotweed, which can poke up through asphalt, and rhododendrons, which colonize woodlands, densely covering the forest floor. Purple pampas grass from South America, loved in many suburban, suburban gardens for its showy plumes, is a menace on rocky coasts where it crowds out native species. I thought about this when I was strolling through one of my local nurseries and observed that they were selling some plants that looked a little suspicious. You can see these plants huddled in a corner, scowling, smoking, casting furtive glances right and left. We knew they were up to no good. But no, better late than never, people have realized that we shouldn't be selling some of these things. The piece quotes a Katarina Den Schmutz from Coventry University in the UK is describing how it takes an average of 100 years for a non-native plant to spread into the wild from its first use. During that time, home gardeners may have noticed its invasive potential. It suggested that today's gardeners should sound the alarm about other introduced species that are taking over their flower beds. Saying, quote, We ask people to report plants that are spreading in their garden and are difficult to control. Anyway, word of the wise, keep an eye on what's going on out there in your garden. But please, if you do see something going on that's, that's of concern, don't tie up the lines with the people at 911. 
We reported with, with great delight on this program about the New Horizons space mission that NASA sent out to take a look at Pluto. New Horizons whipped by Pluto, I think it was on January 1st, 2015, and then was reprogrammed to visit another distant space rock, which is now called Akaroth. That was four years later in 2019. It's still out there. Its cameras are still working, and apparently it has spotted another pair of asteroids out in the Kuiper Belt. Researchers at Johns Hopkins University said to make these observations, we had to press the highest resolution camera on the spacecraft and the spacecraft itself to their limits. But as a result, they found a couple of 50-kilometer diameter objects that are orbiting each other a distance of about 200 kilometers. So you're looking at something that's like 30 miles across from a distance of something like 4 billion miles. I think that's just within the range of something that we can spot from Earth, but it's nice to get a closer up look. Maybe, maybe New Horizons will find a few more before it's through. Closer to home on Mars, the Perseverance rover in the Jezero crater has taken photographs of some boulders that were apparently moved during massive flooding events billions of years ago. These are like boulders five feet across. Obviously, there was some serious water motion going on back in the day. These floods deposited a lot of silt and mud that might contain signs of life. The search continues. And here's some news about the interaction between water and life here on Earth. In this case, the news that there are very few yachts currently for sale in the United States, and COVID-19 is a big reason, according to the Los Angeles Times. We were unaware of this particular problem being faced by Americans, but uh, the piece quotes a yacht broker, Trenton Carroll, as saying that before the pandemic, it was typical for him to have up to $10 million worth of inventory at any given time. It could take six months to make a sale, even after tacking on discounts and other incentives. Now, he rarely has anything in stock. The other week, a pre-owned sailboat, I love that, not a used sailboat, a pre-owned sailboat, was snapped up sight unseen 12 hours after he listed it. Meanwhile, people who already own boats are facing prolonged delays getting them repaired, cleaned, painted, and upgraded. A man named Bill Wolf, age 74, said he can't even find a place to dock his powerboat at the California Yacht Club in Marina del Rey. He's been on a wait list for a 50-foot slip since May of 2020. It's a shame to hear these stories, isn't it? Anyway, the story here is that when this economic downturn hit the country last year in the wake of COVID-19, uh, the yacht brokers were bracing for a repeat of, um, well, when the first wave went into effect. But this year, it turns out that... Um, they saw that business tanked for a few weeks, but rebounded and, it and has continued to rebound because the ocean open provided the ultimate low-risk getaway. People who could afford it chartered boats. Those with even greater financial means just bought them outright. And thanks to surges in investments such as stocks, real estate, and Bitcoin, the number of people with yacht money has never been bigger, even as the economy as a whole struggles to shake off the effect of the pandemic. The number of new boats sold in the U.S. in 2020 hit a 13-year high of nearly 320,000 vessels. And if you're wondering about it, the Marine Association classifies a yacht as a boat of at least 33 feet in length. But there is no true standard definition. I once had a wooden boat and I asked my boat guy what defined a yacht. He said, well, some people say 33 feet and others say if you've got your own ice maker on board. When asked about the difference, a spokesman for the California Yacht Club said, when you go in and say, how much, it's a boat. 
when you say, I don't care what it costs, that's a yacht. Anyway, when you factor in the used boat market, more than 1.3 million boats were sold nationwide last year. The Marine Association has said that 415,000 Americans became first-time boat buyers, the first increase in more than a decade. And yes, it can be said that all those people get to experience that famous phrase in the boating community that when you buy your boat, it's the happiest day of your life. And then when you sell that boat, it's the probably the second happiest day of your life. Others have pointed out that boat, B-O-A-T, stands for break out another thousand. While others have defined a boat as a hole in the water into which you toss money. Anyway, I had to laugh at this piece in the LA Times. It quoted Tom Hugh-Jones, a broker for Denison Yachting in Marina del Rey, as saying, I know it sounds kind of crazy, but 60% of the people, 70% of the people maybe, may never take their boats out. They'll have friends on the dock and they'll have little get-togethers. Hey, come for wine. And they'll watch the sunset go down. They'll sit around and brag about how great they are and how they are legends in their own mind. I don't think this broker would be talking like this if the market wasn't the way it was. But when you know it, many of the same factors that are leading to runs on houses, cars, and luxury retail goods during this pandemic are also at play in the boating bonanza. Here's a curious part of this article. On the demand side, it is the historic increase in the buying power among the ultra-wealthy. This bull market has disproportionately benefited those who already had huge reserves of money, and their existing investments combined with wealth-friendly tax laws further widened the socioeconomic gap. As a result, notes the LA Times, the number of individuals with more than 50, 50, $50, million in net worth has increased 24%, which is the biggest increase in nearly two decades. Billionaires, if you're keeping score, have seen their wealth surge by 69%, according to Oxfam. So, as Mr. Tom Hugh Jones, that outspoken yacht broker for Denison Yachting, said, eh, the filthy rich got filthier richer. We do kind of hope for his sake his customers are not reading the LA Times. But yeah, just as uh, home buyers are getting cold calls asking if they want to sell their house, uh, uh, boat owners are getting cold calls asking if they want to sell their boat or yacht. Strange thing to look at. The piece notes there's almost no 50-foot slips available in Long Beach. Newport Beach doesn't have any space. It is pretty easy to find a 30-foot slip because no one's buying 30-foot boats anymore. They want bigger. This does take me back. I haven't owned a boat now for many a year, but when I had one in the Sacramento Marina and I would take it out, which I did on a very regular basis, I looked around and noted that as far as I could see, indeed, most of the boats never went out. Now, we've often talked in this program about how several publications seem to contribute uh, pretty regularly to the show, The Week, New Scientist, The Economist, of late The New Yorker, for a while Smithsonian, and we've now added The Atlantic to the, the pile. And I gotta say, there's some pretty fine articles that appear in that publication, lengthy articles you have to spend some time with. And one I think we need to spend a little bit of time with is the article in the current edition by McKay Coppins titled, The Men Who Are Killing America's Newspapers. The subheadline is, Inside Alden Global Capital, The Secretive Hedge Fund Cutting Newsrooms and Damaging Democracy. Now, the uh, gutting of newsrooms and damaging of democracy has been a, uh, a subject that we've talked about at length, unfortunately, dating back at least to like 2003. A milestone piece appeared in Project Censored's uh, 2003 summary, a fine piece of work by Mark Crispin Miller, taking a look at the top 10 
media giants around the world and showing the stunning degree of media consolidation that existed 18 years ago, which had been building over the previous generation. Before that, Ben Bagdigian had been writing about media consolidation since at least 1983. I have the sixth edition of his book, The Media Monopoly, um, in front of me. Suffice it to say, between his first edition and sixth edition and Mark Crispin Miller's writing in Project Censored a couple years after that, things were not getting better. And wouldn't you know it, since then, they've gotten a lot worse as is unfortunately well documented in this article in The Atlantic by McKay Coppins, who said that when the Chicago Tribune building was constructed in 1922, its owner, Colonel Robert R. McCormick, said he wanted to erect the most beautiful building in the world for his beloved newspaper. The best architects of the era were invited to submit designs for his office building. The piece notes that the final product, completed in 1925, was an architectural spectacle unlike anything the city had seen before. A romance in stone and steel, one writer described it. Notes the author, a century later, the Tribune Tower has retained its grandeur, but it has not retained the Chicago Tribune. To find the paper's current headquarters, one afternoon in June, he said he took a cab across town to an industrial block west of the river. After a long walk down a windowless hallway lined with cinder block walls, he got in an elevator which deposited him near a modest bank of desks near the printing press. The scene was somehow even grimmer than I'd imagined, he said. Here was one of America's most storied newspapers, a publication that had endorsed Abraham Lincoln and scooped the Treaty of Versailles, that had toppled political bosses and tangled with crooked mayors and collected dozens of Pulitzer Prizes, was reduced to a newsroom the size of a Chipotle. He noted if you spend some time around these shell-shocked journalists at the Tribune these days, you'll hear him ask the same question over and over. How did it come to this? Said McKay Coppins. On the surface, the answer seems obvious. Craigslist killed the classified section. Google and Facebook swallowed up the ad market. And a procession of hapless newspaper owners failed to adapt to the digital media age, making obsolescence inevitable. This is a story we've been telling for decades about the dying local news industry, and it's not without truths. But what's happening in Chicago is different. I do want to note, as as an aside, that I purchased a copy of the Sacramento Bee a few days ago and was stunned to see that it was reduced to eight pages of A section, eight pages of B section. It was more, more a flyer than it was the Sacramento Bee. But as he notes, in Chicago, there's more going on to the story. Last May, the Chicago Tribune was acquired by Alden Global Capital, a secretive hedge fund that has quickly and with remarkable ease become one of the largest newspaper operators in the country. He notes the new owners did not fly to Chicago to address the staff, nor did they bother with peons to the vital civic role of journalism. Instead, they gutted the place. Two days after the deal was finalized, Alden announced an aggressive round of buyouts. In the ensuing exodus, the paper lost the Metro columnist, who championed the occupants of a troubled housing complex, and the editor who maintained a homicide database that the police couldn't manipulate. Also, the photographer had produced beautiful portraits of the state's undocumented immigrants and the investigative reporter who'd helped expose the governor's offshore shell companies. When it was over, a quarter of the newsroom was gone. He notes, as the months passed, things kept getting worse. Morale tanked. Reporters burned out. Through it all, the owners maintained their ruthless silence, spurning interview requests and declining to articulate their plans for the paper. 
Longtime Tribune staffers had seen their share of bad corporate overlords, but this felt more calculated, more sinister. The piece quotes Charlie Johnson, a former Metro reporter for the Tribune, is saying it's not as if the Tribune is just withering on the vine despite the best efforts of the gardeners. It's being snuffed out quarter after quarter after quarter. Said Johnson, they call Alden a vulture hedge fund. I think that's honestly a misnomer. A vulture doesn't hold a wounded animal's head underwater. This is predatory. A little later, the author notes that it's easy to romanticize past eras of journalism. The families that used to own the bulk of America's local newspapers, the Bonfilses of Denver, the Chandlers of Los Angeles, were never perfect stewards. They could be vain, bumbling, even corrupt. At their worst, they used their papers to maintain oppressive social hierarchies. But most of them also had a stake in the communities their public... But most of them also had a stake in the communities their papers served, which meant that if nothing else, their egos were wrapped up in putting out a respectable product. The 21st century has seen many of these generational owners flee the industry to devastating effect. What threatens local newspapers now is not just digital disruption or abstract market forces. They're being targeted by investors who have figured out how to get rich by strip mining local news outfits. The model is simple. Gut the staff, sell the real estate, jack up subscription prices, and wring as much cash as possible out of the enterprise until eventually enough readers cancel their subscriptions that the paper folds or is reduced to a desiccated husk of its former self. The men who devised this model are Randall Smith and Heath Freeman, the co-founders of Alden Global Capital. Since they bought their first newspapers a decade ago, no one has been more mercenary or less interested in pretending to care about their publication's long-term health. Peace quotes a Ken Doctor, a news industry analyst who reviewed data from some of the papers and said, it sounds like a losing formula to, uh, to not care about the long-term interest of the paper, but... These papers don't have to become sustainable businesses for Smith and Freeman to make their money. With aggressive cost-cutting, Alden can operate its newspapers at a profit for years while turning out a steadily worse product. Indifferent to the subscribers, it's alienating. And I guess the point of this piece is this investment strategy does not come without social consequences. When a local newspaper vanishes, research shows, it tends to correspond with lower voter turnout increased polarization, and a general erosion of civic engagement. Alden now controls more than 200 newspapers, including some of the country's most famous and influential, the Chicago Tribune, the Baltimore Sun, the New York Daily News. It also owns the East Bay Times. Alden Capital is also defined by an obsessive secrecy. Its website contains no information beyond the firm's name, and its list of investors is kept strictly confidential. When lawmakers pressed for details last year on who funds Alden, the company replied that, quote, there may be certain legal entities and organization structures formed outside of the United States, end quote. Oh, did we mention the fact that Randall Smith lives in Palm Beach, Florida, and is a close ally of Donald Trump? We should. Sad story is that when Alden first got into the news business, Heath Freeman seemed willing to indulge some innovation. The firm oversaw the promotion of John Payton, the charismatic digital media evangelist, who improved the paper's web and mobile offerings and increased online ad revenue. In 2011, he launched an ambitious initiative he called Project Thunderdome, hiring more than 50 journalists in New York and strategically deploying them to supplement short-staffed local newsrooms. For a fleeting moment, 
Alden's newspapers became unexpected darlings of the journalism industry, written about by Pointer and Neiman Lab, endorsed by academics like Jay Rosen and Jeff Darvis. But by 2014, it was becoming clear to Alden's executives that Patton's approach would be difficult to monetize in the short term. Reinventing their papers would require years of false starts and fine-tuning, and, most important, a delayed payday for Alden's investors. So, Heath Freeman pivoted. He shut down Project Thunderdome, parted ways with Patton, and placed all of Alden's newspapers on the auction block. When the sale failed to attract a sufficiently high offer, Friedman turned his attention to squeezing as much cash out of the newspapers as possible. Their calculus was simple. Even in a declining industry, the newspapers still generated hundreds of million dollars in annual revenues. And since they weren't concerned about the long-term health of the assets, they just needed to maximize profits as much as possible. The newspapers were treated like oil wells, an extractive industry. One interesting part of this piece is the author finally secured an interview with um, the CEO, Freeman, and noted that he was animated when they turned to the prospect of extracting money from big tech, saying, quote, we must finally require the online tech behemoths such as Google, Apple, and Facebook to fairly compensate us for our original news content, which is a valid point. Many in the journalism industry are watching lawsuits play out in Australia and Europe. They've held out hope in recent years that Google and Facebook will be compelled to share their advertising revenues with the local outlets whose content populates their platforms. Anyway, worthwhile piece. I suggest, dear listener, that you find it and read it. We would see our role to play in all of this from one paragraph in the piece that notes that Beneath all the recriminations and infighting, there was a cruel reality. When faced with the likely decimation of the country's largest local newspapers, most Americans didn't seem to care very much. Americans should care a great deal. Well, we think so anyway. That's why we keep bringing it up. I can't help but think of that movie Pretty Woman with Richard Gere and Julia Roberts many years back, wherein Richard Gere portrays this vulture capitalist type jerk who uh, breaks up companies, but comes in, buys them up, parts them out. Kind of an SOB about it. But in Hollywood's telling of it, gets redeemed by falling in love with a street hooker. We kind of have the feeling that the story of the Chicago Tribune and the story of uh, Alden Global Capital is not going to turn out to have such a happy ending. does it for this segment you've been listening to radio parallax i'm douglas everett stick around because we got more to talk about Mm